from the Heidelberg Catechism. Let's read together Lord's Day 9. What do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth? The eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and all that is in them, and who still upholds and governs them by his eternal counsel and providence, is for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father. In him I trust so completely as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul. I will also turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this life of sorrow. He is able to do so as Almighty God and willing also as a faithful father. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, where do you go when you're in trouble? To whom do you look for help when you're faced with sorrow or distress in your life? Whom do you call on when you are afraid or anxious or depressed? Some of us may turn to our dad or mom. Some might seek help with their spouse or a family member or a close friend. But what if the people in your life can't help you? What if your issues, your struggles, your problems are too big for them? Is there anyone who is always there? Who's ever able to help us? Is there anyone who can give comfort and hope when we're down and out? I think you know where I'm going with these questions. Who can help us when people have disappointed us or failed us or unable to help us or comfort us or give us hope? Only God can. If you're a Christian, then you know that. Or at least you should. But even as Christians, we can face doubts in our lives. We're not always secure in our faith in God. Sometimes we have questions. How do I know God is real? How do I know that I can trust God? In my life I've faced so many setbacks, so much trouble and sorrow. I've called on God in my prayers, and it often seems like he isn't listening. Who is God anyways, and how am I supposed to put my confidence in him? These are basic questions that many Christians will ask at some point in their lives. When faced with adversity, with loss, with brokenness, with sorrows. And we need to come to terms with who God is, and with what we can expect from Him. The question we face is, can we know God? As weak and sinful creatures, is it even possible for us to know Almighty God? 
And if so, how can we know God? By what means has he made himself known to us? We read together this afternoon from Article 2 of the Belgian Confession. It's titled, How God Makes Himself Known to Us. Teaches us we can know God by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the world. And secondly, God makes himself more clearly and fully known to us by his holy and divine word. To summarize, we can know God through creation and through the Bible. These are the means through which God has revealed himself to us. In the last few Lord's Days, we've learned that to be saved, we need a true faith in God. Faith includes both a sure knowledge of what God has revealed to us in his word, as well as a firm confidence that God's promises are also for me. Our faith is summarized in the 12 articles of the faith, which we call the Apostles' Creed. Our faith is focused on the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This afternoon, we'll learn some more about who God the Father is and why we can turn to Him in times of trouble and distress. I preach you God's Word under the following theme. God has made Himself known to us as God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. We'll see how creation reveals God's glory and power and how the Bible reveals God's grace and love. Have you ever stood outside at night and gazed into the sky? Especially when you get away from the artificial lights of the city, the night sky lights up. Though darkness surrounds us, up above us there is light. There are thousands upon thousands of stars. If you take out some binoculars or a telescope, you'll see there's millions of them up there. If you know where to look, you'll see some of the planets too. Right now, only Jupiter and Saturn are visible to the naked eye. Venus, Mercury, and Mars are too close to the sun to be visible. Most of the time at night, we can also see the moon. Now at night, when we're stargazing, it's often pretty quiet. But there is a voice that speaks. If you listen carefully, you can hear it. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. While the heavens themselves are silent, they are continually giving a testimony. They are declaring, proclaiming, revealing. They're telling us about God. They're a silent witness of His glory and majesty. Can you look at the vast sky, the radiant stars and moon, the circling planets, and not wonder where they came from? Think about how far the stars are from us, 
how magnificent and brilliant they must be to transmit light all the way back to earth. Consider the orbit of the stars and the planets, how they move in precise and predictable patterns. You ever consider the sun, how it gives light and life to all those on earth? The heavens declare the undeniable signature of their creator. They testify of God's power and majesty and glory in creating them. They speak of his faithfulness and love in making this world into an inhabitable place for us to live. Yet not all people believe this. Many people believe that science has disproven God. We live in a culture that is bought into Charles Darwin's teachings on evolution. Many in society believe that the living organisms we see around us evolved over millions of years. A prominent atheist claims that nature offers no compelling evidence for an intelligent designer and countless examples of unintelligent design. If you examine the theory of evolution, you see that it's based on chance. Its followers claim that it is by random chance that man evolved as he did, somehow developing from a single cell organism into various species until somehow over millions of years a human being evolved. This theory denies that there is order or direction or purpose in man's life. Now, my grade 11 and 12 catechism class, we're working our way through an apologetics course. We're learning how to defend the faith against the perspectives of the world around us. The course we're working through is called uh, God Quest. We're learning how we can know and be sure that God exists and that what the Bible teaches is true. Chapter 2 deals with the origins of the world. Sean McDowell, the author of this course, stresses that what you believe about the origins of this world determines how you view yourself and life. Sean McDowell gets into the clash of worldviews between evolutionists and Christians. He asks, so who is right? Do the skies proclaim the glory of God? Or does nature reveal unintelligent design. He uses a neat example to show how this world was exquisitely created in order to be able to support life. He tells us to imagine going on a hike and finding what appears to be an abandoned cabin. As you get close, you notice something strange. You smell the scent of your favorite meal. And in the background, you hear the sound of your favorite song playing. You walk through the door and you see the fireplace already lit. The books you like to read lying on the table. The DVDs you like to watch on the TV. 
And as you wander into the bathroom, you notice the toiletries you normally use set out on the counter. Now, what would you think? Obviously, you'd suspect that someone knew you were coming and prepared the cabin for your arrival. Sean McDowell uses this example to teach how, in many ways, the universe is just like this cabin. He argues that the many conditions that allow humans to live on earth are precisely set to make this possible. He shows how the laws of nature that allow us to survive on earth are set on a razor's edge. That the slightest change to the right or left would make the universe inhospitable to life. He concludes that the world itself gives evidence of intelligent design in that it's fine-tuned for life. This is compelling proof. God created the heavens and the earth. There's a second example that Sean McDowell uses to prove that we are not the result of some evolutionary process. In this example, he doesn't look to the vastness of the universe, but into the smallest cell. One of the greatest discoveries of the past century is DNA. Our bodies contain more than 100 trillion cells. A cell is made up of millions of molecules. DNA is a molecule that contains the genetic code of the organism. Thus, DNA stores information. A conservative estimate is that one cell stores 8 billion letters. That's the equivalent of 500 million words or about 8,000 books. A cell is so intricate that Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft, said, DNA is like a computer program, but far, far more advanced than any software we've ever created. This raises a troubling question for those who don't believe in God. Where does all this information come from? The only answer that evolutionists can come up with is that somehow this all came about by chance. Sean McDowell uses a brilliant example to show how far-fetched this answer is. Imagine that you are walking along the beach where the waves lap up on the shore. And in the packed sand, you find a love heart with the words, John loves Mary. Now, either you would think that John loves Mary or that Mary wants to be loved by John or that someone's playing a trick on both of them. But you know that marks like these could only be the work of intelligence. They could never be the result of an earthquake or of the wind or of the waves. Sean argues that in the same way, our DNA testifies of intelligent design. It points to the creator who made us. What's interesting is that Almost everyone has some idea that there is a God. 
or what they call a, a higher being or a supreme intelligence. Whether you know the Bible and believe it or reject it or you don't know it at all, most people have some sense that God exists. Now, atheists and agnostics work hard to deny this sense of God. Yet the fact that they have to put up such a struggle against God makes it clear that they too have some instinct that he is there. Paul explains this for us in Romans 1, verses 19 and 20. He says that what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Paul explains that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. The point is, the entire natural world bears witness to God through its beauty, its complexity, its design, and its usefulness. Our experience of the world around us teaches us that creation is ordered in a particular way. We witness a regular pattern of days and nights, of moons and tides, summers and winters, planting and harvest, life and death. Anyone who has eyes to see should be able to tell that everything around us is not the result of some random process of nature. Just as a loose pile of bricks is not miraculously transformed into a house without being built by someone, so this world does not come about by some kind of evolutionary process. It has an architect, it has a builder. The Lord our God is the creator of the heavens and the earth and of all that's in them. The Bible testifies of God's creative work. Psalm 33 verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Verse 9 adds, For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Psalm 104, verse 24 says, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. It's good for us to consider God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. Doing so helps us to realize God is big and we are small. It helps us to appreciate God's majesty and glory and our insignificance. The fact that God is the creator of heaven and earth and all that's in them has great relevance for our lives. Just like an artist has a claim on the things he has made, so God has a claim on creation. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. This also applies to us as human beings. God has a claim on the life of every man and woman, every boy and girl. God desired that mankind would praise him and give him the glory that was due to his name. 
Many people have rejected God's claim. They don't accept God as their creator. They want to live life their own way without taking God into account. Our culture's attitudes can influence us as Christians. So often we think we're in charge of our own lives. Just think of the attitudes we often have towards material things. We speak about my job, my money, my car, my house. We think because we've worked for what we've got, it's ours. We forget God is the one who is given in the first place. That ultimately it all belongs to him. How often don't we make plans without saying, the Lord willing. Plans to build a house or invest in a business or go on holidays. But do we remember that the Lord is in charge of our lives? Are we willing to submit ourselves to the way in which he leads us? The Lord often gives us reminders about how he is actually in control. We need to remember that God is not just creator of this world. He's also the preserver of life. He still upholds and governs this world by his eternal counsel and providence. God rules over this world by his almighty power. He governs all things in such a way that nothing comes about by chance. Prosperity and adversity, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come to us from his fatherly hand. At times, this is hard for us to accept. Although we're happy to receive from the hand of the Lord, we're not always so accepting when he takes things from us. We find it hard to say with Job, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There's times when we struggle to understand God's ways in our lives. Why do we face struggles and hardships? If God is almighty, why does he allow us to suffer sickness, to undergo financial struggles? Why doesn't he give loved ones faith so they too can share in his promises? We often ask all kinds of questions when trying to come to terms with why our all-powerful God allows suffering. Sometimes we even get to the point where we blame God for the adversity we face in our lives. Beloved, let us never forget that the source of all misery and suffering in this life, it's sin. Sin is the cause of all unhappiness and sorrow. It's the root problem facing man. Let's never think that God does not have power to save us from our distress. Instead, let's deal patiently with the adversity that comes upon us in our lives. Perhaps it's meant to stop us in our tracks, to help us acknowledge God as the creator and sustainer of our lives. Perhaps God wants to teach us to number our days, to look forward to a future life 
with him. Even though we don't always understand how and why God uses his almighty power, it should not make us doubt his loving care over us. We deal with this further in our second point, and it will see how the Bible reveals God's grace and love. The Bible is a place in every Christian home. We read it when we sit down to eat a meal. We study it to prepare for Bible study. Often there's something in the Bible that catches our attention. We take time to meditate on it. The Bible is often compared to food. 1 Peter 2 verse 2 says, Like newborn infants, Long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Peter makes a point that the Bible is as necessary for growing in faith as milk is to a newborn baby. When Jesus was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness at the beginning of his public ministry, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Afterwards, he was hungry, and Satan came to him, saying, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Jesus answered him with words taken from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so, just as bread was a staple of life in ancient Israel, So God's word is our spiritual food, which we need for life with God. There's also another image used which compares the Bible to food. Psalm 19 verse 10 says that the word of God is sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. These days, honey is readily accessible to us. Yet in David's time, honey was rare. It was a luxury item. In those days, people didn't have refined sugar like we have or any of the other sweeteners that goes into food today. Honey was craved and people were happy to find it. When they ate it, it gave an immediate energy boost. So it's significant that in Psalm 19, God's word is compared with honey. You know why that is? Psalm 19 says that God's word revives the soul and makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart and enlightens the eyes. You know how the Bible does that? It tells us about who God is and the mighty works he has done for us. It tells us about God's creation of the world and man's fall into sin. It shows us God's grace and love and the saving work of Jesus Christ and the transforming power of his spirit. What the Bible makes known about God isn't only necessary for our salvation. It's delightful. It fills our hearts with comfort and joy. When teaching us about God, Lord Zenon does not just focus on the fact that he is the almighty creator of heaven and earth. It stresses we have an even more personal connection with our God. Our Catechism explains that God is the eternal father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Then it adds that he is, for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father. The point is that we can trust in God the Father just as a child trusts his daddy. A child knows that daddy loves him, that he'll protect him and provide his needs. We can have that same kind of trust in our Heavenly Father. Our reading from John 1 explains why we can put that kind of trust in God. John 1 begins with a beautiful description about who Jesus Christ is and how he came into the world. It calls Jesus the Word. In Greek, the term logos is used. John's Gospel opens with the saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This echoes the opening phrase of the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's through his spoken word, God created the universe. And it's through the word, through Jesus Christ, that God would redeem it. The focus of John's gospel is on God's grace and love in Jesus Christ. And how he came to save us from our sins. In the verses we read together, John makes clear that Jesus was a light shining in the darkness to give life to man. Yet though he came into the world, the world did not know him. Though he came to his own, his own people did not receive him. And then John makes a glorious statement that provides us with so much comfort and hope. He said, But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John's point is that by faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord, God adopts us into his family. Through Christ's redeeming work, God becomes our Father. We become his children. This is great news for us, beloved. It means that we have someone who truly loves us, looking after us. In Matthew 7, the Lord Jesus asked, Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask Him? As our Father, Almighty God will provide all our needs. For that's what He has promised. Our Father has promised to provide for our physical needs. Do you doubt that? Well, go home and read from Matthew 6. Verses 25 to 34. There the Lord Jesus showed his disciples God's care over the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. He said, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness And all these things will be added to you. 
Our Father has also promised to provide for us spiritually. Do you doubt that? Go home and read from Romans 8, 31 to 39. There the Apostle Paul showed us the Father's love for us in Jesus Christ. He said, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously grant us all things? Paul acknowledges that we can be faced with tribulation and distress and persecution and famine. And yet Paul concluded that it's impossible for anything or anyone to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So beloved, does this answer all our questions? Does it help us to understand all God's ways? No, it doesn't. When tragedy strikes, we often have a very difficult time coming to terms with the fact God is both almighty and at the same time the overflowing fountain of all good. When faced with hardships and distress, we may not understand the way in which God is leading us forward in our lives. And yet, because of the way in which God has made himself known to us, we trust him. As Almighty God, he's able to help us because of his great power. As a faithful father, he will help us because he loves us. Amen. In response to the gospel message, let's rise and sing from hymn 13.